Hear Wild Cornell Medicine's physicians and healthcare providers. Check out the entire podcast library at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, we are going to review this year's Leonard's List. And the Leonard List is a list that uh, I started several years ago uh, on Twitter, counting down through the 10 days before the American Society of Hematology meeting, uh, the 10 most interesting or important abstracts in lymphoma or abstracts that just got my attention that are going to be presenting at the upcoming meeting. And so uh, what we decided to do this year, in addition to our Twitter countdown, was to actually uh, give you a preview uh, of this year's Leonard's List. So um, in the Leonard List, what I have done is basically uh, looked at abstracts that got my attention and, and that were of interest and kind of put them out there. And uh, they're really there for people to think about, maybe things that people missed as they look at looked at the abstracts. And certainly there are patients and others in the field that uh, may have their own opinions, and sometimes that leads to dialogue on Twitter or elsewhere. So uh, we're happy to have some dialogue about uh, some of the new uh, data coming out at the ASH meeting. For those of you who are less familiar with ASH, uh, ASH is the uh, world's largest professional society that serves clinicians and scientists who work uh, to cure, manage, and understand blood diseases. Every year for the past 60 years, uh, ASH hosts an annual meeting, and this uh, is a gathering of more than 25,000 hematologists from across the world that discuss the latest research and discoveries in hematology and really gather uh, to interact, to present data, to talk about new findings, and also to build uh, collaboration. And uh, if you'd like to reference these individual abstracts that we'll go through today, you can take a look at my uh, Twitter at John P. Leonard, MD. That's where uh, over the course of about 10 days, I will uh, again provide some written comments and also links to all of the individual uh, abstracts that we'll talk about today. And one of the things that we uh, also are doing in this episode is that we decided since we have a little extra time uh, for our listeners, we'll have five bonus abstracts that I'll get to at the end. So actually the Leonard list will be 15 abstracts for those of you listening uh, on our CancerCast podcast. And uh, so you'll have a little extra uh, insight and a little extra thought beyond the typical 10. So I'd like to go ahead and jump right into uh, this year's uh, Leonard List uh, Ash Abstracts. Uh, and so we'll just go ahead and start the countdown, and I'll give you a few uh, comments on each of these that got my attention. Uh, so the first of these, uh, number 10, we'll count down backwards, uh, is Abstract 679. The first author here is Catherine Diefenbach from NYU. This is entitled A Phase One Study with an Expansion Cohort of the Combinations of Ipilimumab, Nivolumab and Brentuximab vidotin in patients with relapsed and refractory Hodgkin lymphoma, a trial of the ECOG Akron Research Group E4412. Uh, and this is really a study uh, that is looking at, as the name implies, uh, a combined 
uh, treatment of immune checkpoint inhibitors as well as the anti-CD30 antibody drug conjugate brentuximab vidotin uh, in patients with relapsed uh, Hodgkin lymphoma and refractory Hodgkin lymphoma. So E4412 was a uh, study that basically uh, looked at uh, and established doses of nivolumab uh, and ipilimumab or ipi um, that are immune checkpoint inhibitors in combination with brentuximab vidotin. And what's being presented in this abstract is really some, some early data uh, on safety uh, and efficacy. And there were uh, 22 uh, enrolled patients in the early uh, part of this study. You can see the details in the abstract if you like. Uh, toxicities uh, were, as one might expect, a number of skin toxicities being uh, most common, rashes, uh, and some autoimmune phenomena, colitis, diarrhea, et cetera. These seem to happen um, largely in limited numbers of patients, but again, it's a phase one study. Uh, there were uh, basically uh, overall the doses were established for this treatment regimen. And interestingly, the overall response rate for the full population was 82% with a complete response rate uh, of 68%. And so I think this is an, an interesting uh, study. It's an interesting combination, uh, obviously using an antibody drug conjugate in combination with an immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, is something that is of interest. Uh, and I'm happy to say that this study is expanding in the intergroup. Uh, uh, I happen to be part of the Alliance Lymphoma Committee. We uh, are collaborating with ECOG Akron, as is the Southwest Oncology Group. And so this study is expanding uh, with larger numbers of patients and is available uh, in many centers across the country. So again, uh, an interesting abstract looking at uh, potentially a new regimen that uh, has activity and reasonable tolerability in relapsed Hodgkin patients that may go on to uh, other disease settings, including potentially the pre-transplant setting and the relapsed uh, situation. And obviously, immune checkpoint inhibitors are being looked at in a variety of different uh, Hodgkin lymphoma settings, as well as obviously solid tumors. Our second uh, in the countdown, or number nine overall, as we count down backwards, is abstract 2873. Uh, this is uh, Chiara Freeman uh, out of the uh, BC Cancer Agency is the first author. This is a poster, again, 2873, entitled Frontline Therapy with Bendamustine and Rituximab, or BR, in Follicular Lymphoma. Prognosis among patients with progression of disease by 24 months, or POD24, is poor, with the majority having transformed lymphoma. So we've learned in follicular lymphoma that early progression, particularly after chemoimmunotherapy, within two years of initial treatment is associated with a less favorable prognosis. And these data have largely come from patients treated with RCHOP or RCVP chemotherapy. And what this uh, study did was it looked at uh, the BC lymphoid cancer database, identifying patients treated with bendamustine rituximab with follicular lymphoma, identified about 300 patients and basically uh, sought to look at the outcomes of those patients who progressed within uh, 24 months 
And again, this is uh, looking at this particular early progressor cohort uh, after, after BR. And the net of this study uh, is that uh, early progression occurred in about 12% of patients. That's perhaps a little bit less than what we've seen in some of the other cohorts, uh, 35 patients. And I think the important aspect of this was that the majority of the early progressors after BR, 77% of these early progressors had transformed lymphoma. And the net is that this group of patients uh, had a relatively unfavorable outcome, uh, even worse than those that progressed uh, after other regimens from other studies. The BR-treated patients with POD uh, within 24 months was poor, uh, with overall survival being uh, just under 40%. This really suggests a couple of things. Number one, that patients treated with BR and having early progression uh, uh, perhaps need to be, probably should be considered for other therapies. There's an intergroup study led by the SWOG that's looking uh, at a number of different regimens uh, for this patient population, PI3 kinase inhibitors, other chemotherapy, as well as uh, lenalidomide-based treatment. Um, but also that the majority, the vast majority of these patients had transformation. And so I think that really tells you that uh, you need to, if you see a patient with early progression after BR, be especially concerned or, or heightened uh, attention to the possibility of transformation, doing a biopsy, uh, because obviously that will uh, change therapy and can be associated with a less favorable prognosis, at least in this, in this cohort. Number eight in our countdown, uh, as we go down backwards, is Abstract 1605. This is led by my colleague Sarah Rutherford at Weill Cornell, and it's entitled Bone Marrow Biopsy Impacts Response Assessment in a Minority of Patients with Follicular Lymphoma and Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma Treated with Immunochemotherapy Results from the Randomized Phase Three Gallium and Goya Trials. And so uh, Dr. Rutherford uh, has been interested in the role or lack of role of bone marrow biopsies in studies of follicular lymphoma and other lymphomas in response assessment. As many of you know, bone marrow biopsies are commonly performed as part of clinical trials where patients are staged and to establish whether or not the patient may have had a complete response after therapy. And we hypothesize that really this uh, was not very valuable, that the place where uh, bone marrow biopsies made a big difference in outcome of response assessment was likely to be pretty small. If you look at the number of patients that had a positive bone marrow, went into a CR, and then the bone marrow is what changed the subsequent response assessment, either away from a CR or confirmed a CR, we hypothesized that bone marrow biopsies were not very helpful. And uh, Dr. Rutherford had looked at a small series uh, from our own patients uh, at Weill Cornell with follicular lymphoma and uh, essentially showed that this point uh, was in fact the case and that bone marrow biopsies had limited utility. She now with her collaborators looked at 1,200 patients from the gallium study with follicular lymphoma and also uh, in the Goya study, uh, had a large number of patients here, 1,400, over 1,400 patients. The net uh, of this analysis was that in the follicular lymphoma study, about half of patients had a positive bone marrow at baseline. 
but after treatment, um, the reality is is that uh, the repeat bone marrow uh, was only relevant for under 1% of the patients in establishing the response uh, and confirming the response. In the Goya trial, looking at DLBCL patients, only about 10% of patients had a positive bone marrow. And again, bone marrow uh, results only affected response, uh, again, under 1% of all enrolled patients. And so this study really, I think, confirms the lack of importance of bone marrow biopsies in response assessments here in both follicular and large cell lymphomas in that the, the bone marrow biopsies uh, affected the response criteria in less than half of 1% of all enrolled patients. And so this really suggests that we can avoid the time, the expense, the discomfort uh, of doing bone marrow biopsies in clinical trials. And I really hope that this will lead to the field and uh, researchers uh, not building bone marrow biopsies into clinical trials in lymphoma unless there are really other reasons uh, for doing so beyond response assessment in the clinical trial. Our next uh, abstract, number seven, uh, is abstract 683. Uh, and this is led by Steve Horwitz at Sloan Kettering uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and colleagues. Uh, this study looked at the combination of duvalisib, which is a PI3 kinase delta gamma inhibitor, and romadepsin uh, in, uh, in patients with uh, peripheral T-cell lymphoma. So duvalisib is uh, the third approved PI3 kinase inhibitor in lymphoma. It's approved uh, predominantly in follicular lymphoma, also in CLL. And the net is that duvalisib uh, hits and, and goes after the delta and gamma isoforms of PI3 kinase. It also has had activity in other studies in T-cell lymphomas, uh, where uh, um, standard therapies in relapsed and refractory T-cell lymphomas have roughly a 25 to 30% response rate. So this study combined duvalisib with romadepsin. Romadepsin is a histone deacetylase inhibitor also approved in recurrent peripheral T-cell lymphomas. In this phase one trial, uh, the doses were established. There were uh, some uh, transaminases as part of uh, the toxicity profile. Uh, other toxicity profiles included cytopenias uh, and uh, a few other uh, toxicities associated with these drugs given separately, including uh, diarrhea. And the net of this, remembering it's a phase one uh, trial, was that um, the overall response rate to this combination in 35 patients with uh, peripheral T-cell, uh, well, with T-cell lymphomas uh, across the board uh, was uh, about 51%, including six uh, CRs uh, across the board and 12 PRs. And so um, the net is that I think the duvalisib-romadepsin uh, combination is one that uh, warrants further studies, and I think we're going to see more of this. The study also looked at uh, duvalisib plus bortezomib, the proteasome inhibitor, and had less activity there. But again, this suggests that the combination of a histone deacetylase inhibitor and a PI3 kinase inhibitor might have value, certainly worthy of further exploration in clinical trials in patients with a variety of different uh, T-cell lymphomas, and we'll see where that combination goes in the future. Our next abstract uh, is abstract uh, number six in our countdown, going down backwards. 
uh, and it's Abstract 681, led by uh, Natalie Grover and colleagues from the University of North Carolina. And this is entitled Clinical Responses to CAR CD30 T-cells in Patients with CD30 Positive Lymphomas Relapsed After Multiple Treatments, Including Brentuximab Vidotin. This audience uh, certainly knows the CAR T-cell or uh, chimeric antigen receptor modified T-cell field well. We have a couple of different CAR T-cell products that are FDA approved for lymphoid malignancies. Uh, however, those tend to target CD19, which is a B-cell antigen. And so one of the interesting uh, areas is obviously to try to bring new targets into the fold for CAR T-cells. And one of those is CD30, which is present uh, on obviously CD30 positive non-Hodgkin lymphomas and in Hodgkin lymphoma on Reed-Sternberg cells. So this is a uh, CAR T-cell uh, that targets CD30. It encodes the CD28 endodomain. Um, and so the uh, there have been early data uh, with this uh, and other constructs. This was a trial that it was a phase 1b2 trial uh, giving lymphodepleting chemotherapy followed by again CD30 CAR T cells. I think this is an interesting uh, area that is uh, moving kind of on the heels of the CD19 directed CAR T cell therapy. This is uh, a, this uh, abstract included a group of patients. There were 18 patients, four of whom were in complete response um, when they went into uh, the CAR T cell therapy because they had received bridging chemotherapy. Uh, and then the 14, there were 14 patients who uh, still had evidence of disease. Of these 14 patients, six had a CR. Uh, these were uh, or 43% uh, of the group. These were in people that had received bendafludarabine lymphodepleting uh, chemotherapy. Overall, uh, the progression-free survival median was relatively short, uh, reported to be uh, in the range of about 120 days or so. Uh, however, uh, two out of 14 valuable patients were still in CR uh, at one year, and there were a number of different uh, technical parameters reported, as well as, as al along the lines of cytokine release uh, and persistence of uh, T cells being reported. And so uh, I think this is an interesting, relatively early step in uh, CD30-directed CAR T-cell therapy also gives some uh, data on the use of uh, lymphodepleting chemotherapy. And obviously, I think we will hear more and see more uh, of this approach using, uh, again, uh, modifications and evolution of the preparative uh, lymphodepleting regimen, as well as uh, optimizing the dose of CAR T-cell uh, treatment, as well as ultimately combinations, I would assume. And, and one would envision, given the uh, interest in immune checkpoint inhibitors in Hodgkin's and the interest in immune checkpoint inhibitors in combinations with CAR T-cells, that uh, at some point in the future, we'll see that combination emerge uh, in this particular setting. Our next abstract, uh, number five in our countdown, uh, is uh, abstract 2911. This is from Reddy and colleagues, a multi-center group, but uh, essentially based at uh, the University of Washington in Seattle and Fred Hutchison Cancer Center. And uh, this is entitled Eligibility for CAR T-cells, an analysis of selection criteria and survival outcomes in chemorefractory DLBCL. 
This got my attention uh, because of an interest and various discussions and and uh, interactions with colleagues thinking about uh, selection biases in CAR T-cell therapy. This is uh, a study that basically looked at um, at this center, uh, and Seattle is obviously a very uh, large center that has been very active in CAR T-cell therapy, uh, looking at patients with the LBCL scene uh, there and looking at those receiving uh, CAR T-cell treatment and those that were not eligible for CAR T-cell treatment. And um, basically, uh, there were about 400 patients in the database, and um, what was looked at and evaluated was uh, the various populations uh, of patients that were uh, ineligible for, that did not receive uh, uh, CAR T-cell therapy to try to uh, get a sense of how these patients uh, did. And the net is that roughly 50% of patients uh, in this uh, group um, that were patients that had chemorefractory disease and would otherwise uh, potentially be candidates for CAR T-cell treatment, about 50% of the patients were ineligible. And um, the uh, issues around uh, eligible patients being uh, having better outcomes than ineligible patients um, was of interest. Obviously, one could interpret this as um, the fact that uh, those those eligible patients receive CAR T cells uh, and potentially uh, did better uh, in some cases. However, um, those that were ineligible um, included those who had uh, acute therapy, uh, a need for acute therapy for rapid disease progression, impaired performance status, uh, and uh, non-follicular transformation. And so um, this, again, I guess, highlights the issues around um, trying to broaden eligibility to help those patients who are not going to do as well, and also highlights the issue of patient selection in clinical trials, which I think in the CAR T-cell literature is very important to keep in mind because of the fact that um, these are, to date, largely uh, non-randomized trials, and so we're comparing to historical data, and obviously these comparisons and the outcomes are going to be influenced by the patients that find themselves eligible for these trials, and therefore, on the other hand, um, when lots of patients or substantial numbers of patients are excluded, uh, obviously this patient selection is going to uh, influence the outcomes that are seen independent of the uh, effects of the therapy itself. Our next abstract is uh, led by uh, Shen Mugsundram. Uh, and colleagues uh, from uh, Emory and representing uh, a multi-center group. This is abstract 4153. Intensive induction regimens after deferring initial therapy are not associated with progression-free uh, or overall survival in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. This is abstract number four in our countdown. Uh, and uh, I, it seems like uh, every year the Emory group uh, here led by uh, 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 Jonathan Cohen, a senior author, uh, has some interesting insights often around mantle cell lymphoma that I find of interest uh, for the Leonard List. So this year is no exception. Uh, and this is uh, an abstract that really 
looked at an issue that we've been very interested in, and my colleague Peter Martin really, I think, uh, was the first uh, among many subsequently uh, who have identified the um, potential uh, ability to uh, watch and wait in mantle cell lymphoma and defer therapy. And it's interesting, there was another abstract I didn't include in the Leonard list, but I came across in the ASH abstracts that suggested that more and more watch and wait or observation with deferred initial therapy uh, seems to be entering the uh, standard practice. More and more patients seem to be observed than perhaps in the past, which is uh, perhaps uh, uh, a result of the data that are coming out suggesting that this is okay to do. So in any event, this particular abstract looked at uh, 968 patients with mantle cell lymphoma uh, in a large group of 11 academic centers, uh, and uh, 233 of these patients did not initiate therapy within 90 days of, of diagnosis and, and were considered deferred uh, as far as having deferred therapy. What this uh, group did was then go on and look at what therapy these patients ultimately received when they uh, received treatment uh, and uh, basically compared uh, the outcomes of those patients uh, who received non-intensive therapy versus intensive therapy, intensive treatment uh, largely being transplant-based regimen um, and non-intensive treatment largely being arbendamustine uh, and our CHOP. And so the net is that the overall uh, survival and progression-free survival uh, was similar in this group of patients who deferred therapy, ultimately received therapy, the use or lack of use of an intensive induction therapy did not seem to improve uh, overall or progression-free survival. And so um, this is interesting. Uh, in my mind, you know, the value of intensive treatments is something that remains uh, questionable with regard to overall survival. Uh, one might argue that um, Patients who are observed for a period of time might have more favorable disease. Uh, certainly they do, but when they ultimately need therapy, presumably their disease has gotten worse and has indications for treatment. And these data suggest that how you treat these patients um, really doesn't matter with regard to overall or progression-free survival. So uh, obviously there are biases and uh, different factors that could influence this, um, but uh, it certainly also suggests that um, this may be a different patient population. And as these patients go on to clinical trials, that uh, that they may reflect a different population than those patients who uh, need initial treatment. And in fact, uh, there's another abstract led by Matt Maurer and colleagues that uh, I was happy to participate in with colleagues suggesting that time to treatment in mantle cell lymphoma, uh, longer time to treatment tends to correlate with better outcomes. So this study um, may also uh, be a, an ultimate reflection of that phenom phenomenon, i.e. patients that are not who can de defer therapy for a period of time uh, tend to do better. Next, uh, in our countdown, uh, our uh, abstract number, our third abstract uh, in the countdown uh, is abstract 1682. This is led by Michael Dickinson and colleagues from uh, Melbourne, Australia, and uh, as well as an international group of collaborators. This is abstract 1682, a phase one study of molibrecib or GSK5. 25762, a selective bromodomain and extra terminal protein or BRD and BET inhibitor. 
results from part one of a phase one, two open label single agent study in subjects with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So uh, there are a number of novel targets under investigation for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, obviously. Molybrecib, uh, which also has this long GSK number, uh, is a potent and specific inhibitor of the bromodomain and extraterminal domain or BET family of proteins. And when you inhibit this family of proteins, this uh, interferes with transcriptional complex assembly and expression of a number of uh, oncogenic drivers. And so there are there is extensive preclinical data with this agent. And uh, this was uh, really the NHL dose escalation cohort from uh, a study in patients with relapsed and refractory hematologic malignancies. And so the authors report on 27 patients with NHL uh, with relapsed or refractory disease. They had a variety of different lymphomas, mostly B-cell lymphomas, as you would expect, a median of three prior regimens. This is an oral uh, drug uh, given once daily, and uh, basically there was a dose escalation uh, cohort here. The uh, findings of this study, uh, I think, were uh, interesting. Uh, one patient with DLBCL uh, had a complete remission, uh, four additional subjects, uh, one with DLBCL, one with CTCL, had partial res uh, remissions, and the overall response rate was 18.5%. Uh, there were a number of other patients that had uh, had stable disease. Toxicities included thrombocytopenia, fatigue, nausea, uh, and rash, as well as a few other uh, toxicities that were reported. And so I think this is interesting because this is an interesting and important target in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, it seemed to be uh, a manageable toxicity profile. The, uh, the recommended phase two dose was uh, identified. There was significant activity, particularly in CTCL. And I know that this agent, as well as others that, going after, that are going after the same target, will be uh, studied uh, further in the future. And I think this is a, a target, an agent, as well as a class of drugs that will be um, potentially something that we hear more about um, in the coming uh, months and years. Abstract number two in our countdown uh, is abstract 2974. Uh, this is led by uh, Stephanie Teha and colleagues from WashU in St. Louis. Uh, and this is uh, sex differences. It's abstract 2974, sex differences in visceral fat measured by uh, CT or computed tomography helps to predict progression-free survival in patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And this got my attention because patients with the LBCL uh, obviously are always uh, are often concerned about risk factors. They're often concerned about what they can do to uh, decrease their recurrence risk. And um, like in many other malignancies, we're learning more and more that obesity is a risk factor for a variety of cancers, including uh, pancreatic cancer, hepatocellular cancer, renal carcinoma, breast cancer. Uh, and this group has looked at visceral obesity uh, using a relative visceral fat area calculation using uh, CT scanning. And um, the bottom line is that um, this group 
group uh, evaluated a large number of patients, 156 patients with DLBCL uh, that were diagnosed and treated at WashU and at St. Louis, Louis. and uh, the two-year overall survival of this cohort was uh, 86%, progression-free survival about 80%, again, uh, perhaps a fairly representative uh, outcome overall uh, for this group of patients. Uh, at, a, at an academic center. And what they did was then go and look at BMI uh, and look at this uh, parameter uh, of RVFA, uh, basically a measure of uh, visceral fat, relative visceral fat area. And the net of this, uh, this report is that elevated uh, RVFA, or essentially more visceral fat, was associated with a higher risk of progression in women with the LBCL, uh, not associated with a worsened prognosis in men. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, this again suggests that as in other malignancies, uh, sex and fat metabolism may play a role in the LBCL prognosis. And uh, there have been other studies that have suggested that obesity uh, is associated with prognosis in various cancers, including lymphoma. And I think it provides uh, more data uh, to uh, you know, raise issues around uh, tailoring of therapy, uh, supportive care, uh, expectations as far as outcomes or stratification in clinical trials, as well as uh, the potential that weight loss for patients uh, might affect outcomes. And obviously, these are associations at this point, uh, so we would need to prospectively test whether or not any specific interventions would impact uh, this effect, uh, if in fact this effect is not just an association but causation. Um, but I think it's an important area to highlight uh, with our patients and certainly um, suggest that uh, one might want to consider this issue in more detail as we look at patients with large cell lymphoma and think about lifestyle modifications and other issues that could uh, affect their outcomes uh, ultimately. The last abstract in the uh, Leonard list uh, for ASH uh, 2018, uh, and we'll get to our bonus five abstracts in just a minute, but our last in our official uh, listing of abstracts is abstract uh, 926 uh, by Bull and colleagues. Uh, this is, uh, Dr. Bull is representing the uh, German Hodgkin study group uh, and a number of different colleagues participating, uh, as well as the Nordic Lymphoma group. This is abstract 926 entitled BCAP, uh, Brentuximab Vidotin, Cyclophosphamide, Doxorubicin, and Prednisone or Prednisolone in older patients with advanced age Hodgkin lymphoma results of a phase two intergroup trial by the GHSG or German Hodgkin study group and the Nordic lymphoma study group. So uh, as is getting increasing attention, uh, there are about 20% uh, of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma are older, uh, age 60 or older. They've been associated, uh, their outcomes have been associated with a poor prognosis, particularly with advanced stage disease. Uh, this uh, in part relates to uh, the disease itself. It in part relates to toxicity, particularly issues with bleomycin and uh, issues with bleomycin in older patient populations and excess toxicity. 
in uh, ABVD-treated patients, uh, and uh, other abstracts suggest that uh, uh, substituting brentuximab bedotin for bleomycin um, may not have a major impact in this older patient population, although uh, those data are still being generated, and some data from that uh, are being reported by Andy Evans and colleagues at, uh, at the ASH meeting this year. Uh, the uh, GHSG, in combination with the collaboration with the Nordic Lymphoma Group, decided to prospectively evaluate uh, a multicenter phase two in a multicenter phase two study, uh, substituting uh, brentuximab bedotin into a CHOP-based regimen with, uh, again, this BCAP regimen in older patients. Uh, this was a group of patients over age 60. Uh, and the net of this uh, study was that it enrolled 50 patients. Uh, they uh, largely had advanced stage disease. The median age was 66, so a fairly unfavorable prognostic group. And um, the net is that the overall response rate uh, was 98%. 21 patients had a CR, 26 with a PR, one progression of disease patient. Uh, and again, uh, the uh, majority, well, about half of the patients with a PR had a negative PET scan. So the complete metabolic response rate was about 65%. And obviously, uh, uh, at this point, uh, more follow-up is needed for the durability. This will be presented at the meeting. Uh, but uh, the net is that this seems to be a feasible regimen for older patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. It incorporates brentuximab bedotin, uh, and it's a CHOP-based uh, type of regimen without vincristine. Uh, and so I think uh, there's been a lot of attention to older patients with Hodgkin lymphoma and exactly what the best regimen is. I think we've uh, largely are moving away from ABVD, but I think we're starting to have a couple of different candidate regimens uh, for this group of patients. Uh, and hopefully we can get some comparative data uh, to try to better establish an optimal regimen for this patient population. And certainly the BCAP regimen, given that it's been tested in a multicenter prospective trial, uh, among other regimens, uh, may warrant, I think, further evaluation uh, in the future. So that brings us to the end of our formal Leonard list, but I want to, since uh, all of you have uh, tuned in and uh, heard um, some of my discussion points about uh, this year's uh, selections, obviously ASH has thousands of abstracts and there are hundreds on lymphoma. So I just wanted to very quickly give you kind of five bonus selections and I'll just uh, very, very quickly uh, give you a few comments on uh, some of these. Uh, obviously, there are many uh, that are being presented at the meeting, but I wanted to highlight a few of interest uh, and of some practical value, uh, particularly if you're paying attention to the field, paying attention to new drugs, and treating patients in your practice. So very quickly, our, our five bonus selections, uh, the first of which is abstract 2883, this is from Matt Davids and colleagues uh, from Dana-Farber, uh, and this is a long-term follow-up of patients with mantle cell lymphoma treated with venetoclax monotherapy. Uh, as you know, venetoclax is an oral inhibitor BCL2. It's improved, approved for CLL uh, and has activity in mantle cell lymphoma. This is a longer-term follow-up report for 28 patients with mantle cell lymphoma. 
we know that uh, venetoclax has been active in, in MCL. Uh, it's being looked at in combinations with other drugs such as abrutinib. And the net of this report was that the overall response rate in these 28 patients was 75%. And uh, at this point, the median progression-free survival is 11 months, a two-year progression-free survival uh, of 30%. So it's a small study. This uh, study was done uh, as part of a larger study uh, some time ago. But what uh, I think is of value is some information on the durability because while venetoclax is not approved in mantle cell, Certainly, I think uh, it's an agent that um, warrants further evaluation in mantle cell, both alone and in combination. And now we have a little bit of data uh, on the durability to base uh, some of these uh, uh, interpretations on. Next, I wanted to uh, highlight uh, abstract 223, 223, late effects of CD19 targeted CAR T-cell therapy. This is, again, from the Fred Hutch Group and, and elsewhere, uh, Cordero and colleagues. And the net of this was uh, to characterize 59 patients with relapsed and refractory NHL and CLL who received 85 CD19 targeted, so some patients had more than one uh, CAR T-cell treatment and had survived more than a year and had at least one year follow-up. So the, the question is, what are the long-term uh, uh, outcomes as far as late effects and side effects? And there's a nice summary of this in this abstract. I think this is useful. Obviously, this is a, a complicated analysis because all of these patients have had extensive prior therapy. And so when you look at late effects, it's hard to know what of the late effects are from the CAR T-cell therapy versus the other prior therapy uh, that these patients would have received. And so there were a number of different uh, adverse events that this patient population had had. I think it's a, a reasonable reference for patients getting CAR T-cells. Obviously, um, many of these patients have such chemorefractory disease that late effects is really a secondary consideration as opposed to the primary disease control. But having some data on what's seen later uh, is of interest and importance. And I think the thing that struck me uh, with this abstract was that there were, uh, of 54 patients, there were 178 uh, suspected infection events beyond day 90 after CAR T-cell infusions in uh, the majority of the patients. And so infections uh, are an issue. I think we're learning more about this. There's some uh, questions around immunoglobulin deficiency and need for IVIG. Um, but in these infections, uh, about half of patients had required hospital admission due to infections. And 15% uh, of them uh, were infections that uh, then that required ICU admission. So the point being that infections seem to be a late uh, finding in CAR T-cell therapy. Again, what this is due to, whether it's the CAR T-cell itself or the combination of that with prior therapy remains to be seen, but we really do need to, uh, if this is going to be used more commonly, uh, need to characterize long-term effects and obviously be prepared to deal with and manage or prevent uh, infections as appropriate. Next, I wanted to highlight abstract 93. This is from Corot and colleagues from NYU and elsewhere. Uh, abstract 93 looked at checkpoint blockade therapy may sensitize aggressive and indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma to subsequent therapy. And this is a little bit of a confounded analysis, but it's an interesting concept looking at 17 centers across the U.S. and Canada. 
121 lymphoma patients, uh, and 42 of them who received uh, further therapy uh, after uh, having pri previously received checkpoint blockade therapy. And there were a number of different treatments, chemotherapy, targeted chemotherapy, chemo uh, clinical trial drugs. And the net is that the overall response rate to this uh, second or next therapy uh, was about 50%. And the argument being made here is that these patients seem to do better than you would have expected or that one might have expected uh, and raises the idea that having had uh, checkpoint blockade therapy may either sensitize or change the disease or the immune system or something uh, to uh, make the next therapy work better. So I think this is an interesting concept. Obviously, uh, it needs uh, uh, to be teased out and can be confounded by a variety of other issues, but I think ultimately uh, is an interesting concept that uh, a prior therapy could sensitize to a subsequent therapy by perhaps priming or resetting in some fashion uh, the immune system. Interesting hypothesis needs to be uh, proven more formally. Next, I uh, wanted to mention an interesting study by Gilles Sal and colleagues, Abstract 227, uh, single-arm phase two study of MORE208 combined with lenalidomide in patients with relapsed and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, also called L-MIND. This is uh, a study looking at uh, an FC-enhanced humanized monoclonal antibody called MORE208, which targets CD19. And the idea is that this uh, antibody may lead to NK cell ADCC, macrophage-mediated uh, antibody-dependent phagocytosis, and direct effects. This study uh, looked at this agent in combination with lenalidomide, uh, which has a number of different anti-lymphoma effects, and it's uh, looking at patients with relapsed DLBCL. So it's 81 patients uh, with uh, roughly a median of two prior lines of therapy. About half of patients had received two or more prior lines of therapy. Adverse events here included neutropenia and other cytopenias, as well as asthenia. Uh, there were dose reductions needed to lenalidomide, which is fairly common. And the interesting part here is that the overall response rate was 58%. And so in a p group of patients with recurrent DLBCL, uh, a combination of lenalidomide and an antibody uh, in patients who were ineligible, uh, according to the investigators, by for high-dose chemotherapy and autotransplant, um, suggests that in this population with limited options, a 50-plus percent response rate uh, was uh, was fairly notable, I think, and uh, there are a substantial number of patients uh, with uh, ongoing responses, ongoing treatment, with a 12-month overall survival rate of 73%. So this combination will be looked at in more detail. Obviously, there's no control group. It's a combination of two active drugs, presumably. So knowing you know which component or the combination being responsible and having a control group would be of greater interest, but certainly uh, this is a, an interesting response rate in patients with recurrent DLBCL. And then finally, the last bonus abstract that I wanted to touch on uh, was abstract 451. This is from uh, Shailen Kotharian colleagues uh, from Roswell Park. It's a multicenter group looking at outcomes of patients with limited stage large B-cell lymphoma with MIC rearrangement with and without BCL2 and or BCL6 rearrangements, a retrospective analysis from 15 U.S. academic centers. And so we have data that suggest 
and show, I think, fairly convincingly that patients with uh, double hit or single hit lymphomas may have uh, a less favorable outcome focusing on MIC rearrangements uh, in particular. Uh, there are retrospective data suggesting that these patients may be treated more or should be treated more aggressively uh, in retrospective comparisons of our EPOC or more intensive regimens to our CHOP, the suggestion that in this group uh, a more intensive approach such as our EPOC uh, can be standard. And I would say that many centers uh, around the country and the world uh, use uh, our EPOC or something more aggressive than our CHOP as their standard approach here. However, uh, there has not been previously uh, a lot of work on limited stage DLBCL uh, with uh, MIC. Uh, rearrangements or disruptions or the double hit or triple hit population. And so this was an analysis uh, of patients uh, that were fine to have stage one and two disease uh, with uh, either DLBCL or high-grade B-cell lymphoma morphology uh, and uh, MIC rearranged uh, uh, features on cytogenetics. The authors uh, uh, gathered 142 patients of which 105 fulfilled their inclusion criteria. Uh, and interestingly, roughly half of patients received CHOP, uh, roughly half of patients received involved field radiation. Uh, and then uh, of the other regimens, uh, EPOC was used or our dose-adjusted EPOC was used as well as uh, our hyper-CVAD. And the net was that the overall response rate was uh, good, 90% or so. Uh, double hit patients seemed to do a little bit less well uh, in this group of patients. Uh, however, overall, the two-year progression-free survival was 78%, and the overall survival was 86%. Uh, for the entire cohort, fairly similar, perhaps slightly lower at 72% and 70 and 82% for the double hit patients. And the net is that um, the choice of therapy uh, was uh, did not seem to impact uh, outcomes, meaning that patients uh, had similar progression-free and overall survival, uh, whether or not they had RT or whether or not they had RCHOP or a more intensive uh, approach. And so the net is that uh, this uh, these are interesting data. It's a pretty large series, non-comparative data, but suggesting that limited stage MIC rearranged um, DLBCL patients, aggressive B-cell lymphoma patients uh, have a pretty favorable outcome and and not a clear benefit of a more intensive regimen, not a clear benefit of using uh, radiation. So again, perhaps some confounding issues in this study, given that it was retrospective, but uh, again, suggesting that stage is an important factor in outcomes for uh, this group of patients. And I think that's uh, an encouraging uh, piece of information. So with that, we'll wrap up. Uh, our summary of the uh, 2018 uh, Leonard List uh, for the American Society of Hematology meeting. Uh, I appreciate that you joined us today. If you'd like to follow me uh, and our discussions on Twitter, you can uh, track me down at John P. Leonard, MD. Uh, and uh, otherwise, we hope that you uh, have enjoyed this episode of CancerCast, and you can take a look at all of our other episodes where we have covered a variety of different uh, topics relating to cancer, supportive care, different malignancies, screening, uh, and issues around uh, survivorship, 
as well as advocacy. And uh, you can uh, take a look at our portfolio of prior episodes. You can also uh, subscribe to us, uh, download, subscribe, rate, and review uh, CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wowcornell.org. Uh, we hope that you will continue to follow us. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time on CancerCast, you can also write to us uh, at cancercast at med.cornell.edu. That's cancercast at med.cornell.edu. With questions, comments, or topics you'd like to see us cover more in depth in the future. That's all today for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. Cancer and cancer treatment can be very hard on the body. Rehabilitation medicine can help cancer patients recover from swollen joints, surgery, and other painful side effects. Be sure to listen to Back to Health, our rehabilitation medicine podcast featuring conversations with leading specialists about rehab, the latest research, and innovations. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.